0: You know, today is an historic day in uh, the history of our church. Uh, Brookstone Church has existed formerly as North Asheville Baptist, now of course as Brookstone, but we have existed as one church here in in Asheville and Weaverville uh, for 110 years. Think about it. Over a century, this church has been carrying the gospel forward uh, to our community and the world. It's 5,720 Sundays. Imagine that, 5,720 Sundays. And to my knowledge, this is the first time in 5,720 weeks when this church has been unassembled uh, two weeks in a row. Now, to my knowledge, this has never happened. There have been uh, Sundays, of course, where we might have a snowstorm or a reason due to uh, inclement weather uh, or some other unusual event where we might have to cancel one service. But to have two weeks in a row where we don't assemble as a church, to my knowledge, has never, ever happened before. And it just speaks to the unusual Uh, days in which we're living. It it speaks to the very, very troublesome times in which we are living. You know, this pandemic uh, is spreading around the world rapidly and it has surely caused a global crisis, a global health emergency. Uh, The numbers go like this. 76% of the world is now uh, affected by the coronavirus. Out of 195 nations that exist in the world, 148 of those nations now have uh, this coronavirus present within their borders. 76% of the world. And the United States, uh, we are number four. Number four out of all the nations of the world in the occurrences of coronavirus. We have in our nation now topped 27,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus. And so we're all aware that it is this uh, world health emergency uh, that has occurred. And the response, the efforts to stem the spread, to slow the spread of coronavirus has created an entirely separate emergency. And that, of course, is the economic emergency. One-fifth of our nation this morning, one-fifth of America, is under some form of a shelter-in-place directive. In some communities in New York and in Chicago, in California and Washington State, there are shelter-in-place orders literally ordered to stay in homes. And even where the orders have not been given, the recommendation, the ask has been made that we would stay home, For a couple of weeks at least in order to slow the spread. 39 states have now canceled or closed at least temporarily their school systems and that equates to 41 million students now who are home every day requiring care along with uh, continuing education. 41 million students. Businesses are closing all around us, as you're aware. Uh, There are are churches, as we're evidencing this morning, churches that are closing as well. Unemployment filings are skyrocketing. In fact, I I read one statistic this week that estimates that, that within a week to 10 days, unemployment filings will reach 2 million people. 2 million people filing for unemployment. The economic impact of such a a, a shutdown of our communities and our economy uh, are are devastating. Uh, Did you realize that the United States stock market has lost 30% of its value in three weeks? Imagine this, three years of gain economically gone in three weeks. Three years evaporated in three weeks. And all across the world, the global losses of all markets combined, $6 trillion in wealth have evaporated over these last few weeks. The fact is some of you watching me now are business owners and you've had to close your businesses. And some of you are employed by those businesses and you are now, at least temporarily, you're unemployed. And you are one of those that have filed for unemployment. Many of you are having to make difficult decisions regarding childcare, and, and now that my kids are out of school, who's going to take care of them? And how are we going to keep working and yet provide child care? And so all of these are a new set of realities that we're facing. And if I've said it once, I've said it a hundred times, I've never in my life seen anything like this before. Have you said that? Have you asked anybody that question? I asked my mother this question just last night. I said, Mom, in all of your years, have you ever seen, do you ever remember anything like this? And she said, no, she didn't. I've asked this question and perhaps you've asked it as well. Has there ever been anything like this in all of our lifetimes? What do you know? that the book of Joel in the Old Testament begins with that exact question. Have you ever seen it like this before? Why don't you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Joel. And we're going to begin in chapter number one, we'll be taking our text from Joel chapter number two. Now, I recognize that Joel, one of the minor prophets, is one of those books that uh, might be a little bit hard to find. So let me help you out. If you'll go to the book of Psalms in the Old Testament and then just go forward a little bit past Psalms, you're going to find the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a large book, 60 some chapters, I believe. You'll you'll find the book of Isaiah. So you'll have Isaiah and then uh, Jeremiah and then Lamentations and then Ezekiel, Daniel, and right after Daniel, it's a little book of Hosea, and then Joel, all right? So it's the back part of your Old Testament, uh, the little three-chapter book of Joel. Now, as I mentioned, Joel is one of the minor prophets uh, the minor prophets, by the way, are not minor because their message is less important than the major prophets. Uh, the minor prophets are called minor because the, the the content of their books is limited; it's small, as opposed to the vast content in the in the major prophets. Joel is one of the minor prophets and while the book of Joel is never dated exactly there are some hints in the book which which tell us that he was one of the very first if not the first of the minor prophets to the nation of Judah some of you will remember that following the death of king Solomon king of Israel David's son Solomon following his death Uh, The nation of Israel was split. It divided into two nations. It was called uh, one one part. The ten northern tribes were called the nation of Israel. The two southern tribes were called the nation of Judah. Well, uh, Joel was one of the first prophets to Judah. He lived and prophesied around the year 800 B.C. He would have been around the time of the prophet Elisha. One of the things that you'll notice when you read the book of Joel is that he spoke eloquently about the day of the Lord. And in fact, he may have been the first of the Old Testament prophets to use that phrase, the day of the Lord. And in fact, in this little uh, tiny book of only three chapters, four different times he uses that phrase, but really repeatedly throughout the book, he teaches us about uh, the day of the Lord. And the book of Joel, the message of this prophet is to to seize upon a national tragedy in the land of Judah and to use that national tragedy as a platform to teach the people, to warn the people about the coming day of the Lord. And his question during those days of national tragedy is this. What is God saying to Israel? That was his question. What does God want to teach us during these days of national tragedy? It's a good question. And it's a good question for us. What does God want to say to America during these days of national difficulty? And more to the point, what does God want to say to the American church, to you and me, during these days. Now, you should have found Joel by now. And I want you to look with me in Joel chapter number one and just survey through chapter one a bit. And I want you to notice the parallels between what's happening in Judah in the days of Joel and what's happening in the world, but certainly here in the United States in our day. Look at chapter one, verse number uh, one. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Petuel, and he said, this is the word of the Lord, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear all ye inhabitants of the land. Has it ever been like this in your days or even in the days of your fathers? There's that question that we've been asking. Have you ever seen anything like this before? That's the question of the Lord through Joel. Has it ever been like this before in your days even in the days of your ancestors the days of your fathers they were asking the same question verse number 4 you'll you'll see what the national tragedy is verse 4 says that which the palmer worm hath left the locust hath eaten that which the locust hath left the canker worm has eaten that which the canker worm has left the caterpillar has eaten now verse number 4 is really referring to four different species of one Uh, uh, kind of locust. Simply put, what's happening in, in Judah during these days is that a swarm of locusts has come upon the land and it's devouring. This army of locusts is devouring the land. Look at what verse number six says. For a nation, these locusts are called a nation, like an invading army. For a nation has come upon my land. They are strong and without number. Their teeth are like the teeth of lions. Verse number seven, they they are laying the vine waste. They are stripping the bark from the fig trees. They have made it clean bare. They have cast it away and the branches thereof uh, have been made white. What Joel says is we've never seen anything like this. These hordes of locusts like an army are coming through our land and they're devouring the land. They have teeth like a lion and they're destroying so much. I heard our president this week say, I am a wartime president. And he identified the coronavirus as a silent enemy, like an invading army, like these tiny locusts, only coronavirus is smaller. It's invisible to the eye and it has invaded like a silent enemy. Invisible enemy, our world and our land. Not unlike what was happening in the days of Joel. Look at chapter number 1 and verse number 9. The result of that, verse number 9, is that the meat offering or the grain offering and the drink offering has been cut off from the house of the Lord. And the priests, the Lord's ministers, are mourning. He says in verse number 9 that the house of the Lord, the temple in Jerusalem, is is fallen silent. Where there would have been, verse nine, m- meat offerings or grain offerings, sheaf offerings, where, where literally they would bring in from the fields their, their long stalks of grain bundled up, and they would wave those before the Lord and they would sing. They're not doing that anymore because they don't have any grain that they could offer to the Lord. And their drink offerings, these wine offerings, where they would pour out with great celebration the fruit of the great harvest that God had given them, and they're not doing that. The celebration at the temple had gone silent, and the priests were grieving because God's house was empty and quiet. Look behind me. God's house, the church, has gone quiet. Quiet a room that today should be filled with with many, many hundreds, multiple times of, of worshipers singing, lifting their voices in their hands to the Lord. It has fallen silent. Walls around me that should be ringing with the praises of God's people. And those walls are quiet because of the silent, invisible enemy that has invaded our land and now the house of God has fallen quiet. Look at chapter one, verses 10, 11, and 12. He says, be ashamed, be, you, you're disappointed, you, you husbandmen, you gardeners. Uh, weep and howl, you vinedressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field has perished, the vine is dried up, the fig tree is languishing, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree, the apple tree, even all the trees of the field, they've withered. It says we should weep because all of our all of our fields in this agrarian society was this was their these were their plants and their manufacturing facilities and their sales offices. This is what they had: vineyards and olive yards and orchards. And they've all fallen silent. There's nothing being produced. And in the same way, in our day, we we look around and, and we see our Economy grinding to a halt. Products and services no longer flowing. And then if you continue to read in verse number 12, at the end of verse number 12, the result of this invading army which has caused the the, the nation to grind to a halt is this. Verse number 12 at the end of the verse says, the joy is withering away from the sons of men. Verse 13, gird yourselves and lament, howl, You ministers of the altar, uh, lie all night in sackcloth, you ministers of my God, because the meat offering and the drink offering is withheld from the house of your God. It speaks to the emotional response of the the very real circumstance. And I sense that so much this is where we are, that there is this sense of of concern. There is this sense of worry and, and even fear. And it's because we've never seen anything like this in our days. I don't know if you can, if you, if you can even miss this. The parallels between what ha- is happening in Joel's day and what's happening in our day. They are almost identical. Now, I mentioned earlier that Joel takes this opportunity of this national tragedy to point people forward to the coming day of the Lord. Look at verse number 15. He immediately points them to the coming day of the Lord. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is at hand and as a destruction from the Almighty, it shall come. What Joel does beautifully, in fact, and powerfully is that he takes this moment of national tragedy and he says to them, know this, that this is a mere snapshot. It's it's merely a prelude to the great day of God Almighty that will come when that day of the Lord comes and that day of judgment. And he expounds in chapter 3. We won't do it, but you can go read chapter 3 where he expounds on what that day of the Lord will be like, even in chapter 2 as well, what that day of the Lord will be like. And he warns the people, essentially saying to them, if you think this is bad, if you think an army of locusts is bad, and you need to be prepared for the day of the Lord. And may I be the voice of Joel to all of you today, that if you think a day of a pandemic is bad, if you think that, that a coronavirus is crippling, the day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord's judgment is coming upon this world. And with Joel, I would say to you, prepare. Be ready for that day of the Lord. So Joel takes a national tragedy, warns them of the day of the Lord that is to come, and then he asks the question, what is God saying to us in these days? And I want us to ask and answer that same question today. What is God saying? Look at verse number 12. Verse 12 of chapter 2. I'm in chapter 2 and verse 12. It says, therefore also now says the Lord. Here we go. This is what the Lord is saying What is God saying to us in these days? This is what the Lord is saying. Let's read it. Uh, Joel chapter 2. Let's begin in verse 11. The Lord shall utter his voice before his army. For his camp is very great. For he, the Lord, is strong that is executing his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. And who can abide it? Therefore also now says the Lord... Turn uh, uh, even, turn ye even unto me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart, not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God. For he, the Lord your God, is gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger. He, the Lord your God, is of a great kindness and he repents himself of the evil that he would bring. Who knows if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion sanctify a fast, call for a solemn assembly, gather the people together, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that are nursing. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests and the ministers of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, spare thy people, O Lord. And do not give your heritage for a reproach that the heathen should rule over them, why should they say among the people, Where is their God? The Lord is speaking in this situation to his people through the prophet Joel, and I believe that just as surely God is speaking to us today. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice about this passage. What is the Lord saying? One thing is that God would be reminding us. He would want us to know. He is saying to us that He, God, is working through this virus. God is working through this virus. I want to talk about that for just a second. Well, let's settle into your heart. God is working through this virus. Notice what Joel says. These verses at the, uh, in the middle of chapter 2, again, are looking forward to the day Of the Lord that is to come. And he says that in that day, the day of the Lord, that God will be working actively through hardship, through difficulty. In fact, in chapter 2 and verse 2, he calls the day of the Lord a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. So he says that during the day of the Lord, God will be active working in the hardships of that day of judgment to bring about his ultimate glory even through those difficult days. Look at chapter 2, verse number 11, where he says, The Lord shall utter his voice before his army. Again, looking forward to the day of the Lord. For he is strong that is executing his word. Here's Joel's point. That as he looks forward to the day of the Lord... And he says that in that day of difficulty and darkness and gloominess and hardship and tribulation, if God is going to be active in those days through those hardships, then it it stands to reason and we can know that God is active in these days, which are simply the prelude to those days. In fact, he's very clear in the book of Joel. Look at it, chapter 2 and verse number 25. Listen listen to what he says. Chapter 2, verse 25. And I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. In chapter 2, verse 25, he's not looking forward. He's talking about their very real situation with this army of locusts that have invaded the land. He says, I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten, the caker worm, the caterpillar, and the palmer worm. And he calls them my great army. Do you see it? Which I sent among you. My great army. God says the locusts that have come in the land, I am using as my great army that has come upon you. He's simply saying that I'm active in your difficulty. I'm active in this time of these locusts that have come upon the land. Now listen to me, church. We can know that in the same way God is active, that God is working in these days of the spread of the coronavirus. And that God can use and is using the spread of the coronavirus to speak, to to bring his people and to bring the land to a place of repentance. God is active in this. Now, Some of you may be asking, and it's a reasonable question, is it then true to say, did God did God create the coronavirus? Is God doing this? I would simply answer the question by saying that death and disease are not the creation of God. They are the result. They are the consequence of sin. Death and disease, including coronavirus, are in this world, not because of God and his goodness, but because of man and our rebellion But that does not preclude God from using even the consequences of our sin to accomplish his work and his glory. So God is active and he's using coronavirus to speak and to bring people to a place that we need to be. You know, we all love 2 Chronicles 7.14. We love the verse that promises revival. That verse says, if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin and heal their land. We love that verse. What a lot of people don't know is the verse before it. Second Chronicles 7, 13 says, When I, God is speaking, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, when I command the locusts to devour the land, when I send pestilence among my people, The fact is God uses famine, drought, disease, locusts, coronavirus. God uses all things to accomplish his glory. Here's what I want you to know. God is using this moment in the history of our world. And we don't need to miss it in the history of our lives, our families, and our church. Because God wants to use it. God is active. This coronavirus. And the second thing I would say that God is speaking to us is that He would want us to know that God is calling His people to repentance and prayer. God is calling His people, that's us. God is calling us to repentance and to prayer. Look at Joel chapter 2 and verse number 12. Therefore also now says the Lord, What is God saying to us in these days? Here's what He's saying, verse 12. Now says the Lord, Turn ye even unto me. God says, turn to me. And the word means return to me. Turn back to me. The idea here, the concept here is that this is God's call to his people to repent. Here's what I believe. I believe that God wants to use this season of national, can we call it? an emergency, a crisis, even a tragedy, that God wants to use this season to bring us to repentance. Because I believe that God wants to transform you and God wants to transform me so that he can then use the transformed us to change the world. Christian friend, listen to me carefully. Please don't simply ask God to use the coronavirus to change the world. You, You can ask him that. I'm asking him that as well. But don't just ask him to use coronavirus to change the world. Ask him to use the coronavirus to change you so that he can then use you to change his world. Do you know that the plan of God is to use his church. God is active in the world, but he's active in the world through his church. And it's through the power, the spirit-filled church of Jesus Christ operating in the power of God that he uses us to go and to transform the world. I'm convinced that the number one focus of our God in this season is the transformation of his people. Verse number 12, turn to me, return to me. Come back to me. That is what God is saying to us. So if God's calling us to repentance, then what should we repent of? That's a big question. And maybe there are many things that God would say to different ones of us. But what does the text say that we ought to repent of? Look at what the Bible says in verse number 12. Turn to me, says the Lord, with your whole heart turn to me with your whole heart. Could it be that God wants to call you and me to repentance for a half-hearted devotion? It's easy, isn't it? It's easy in a comfortable pre-coronavirus world, in, in a world of a soaring economy and in a world of more jobs than people to fill them, in a world of great ease, it's easy, isn't it, for our hearts to become divided. For our devotion to the Lord to become half-hearted. And he says in verse number 12, return to me with your whole heart. Don't let your heart be divided, half for me and half over there, but let your whole heart come back to me. Believe this is what God is calling us to. A repentance of being half-hearted followers of Jesus. You know, Isaiah spoke to this in Isaiah 29.3 when he says, These people draw near to me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I believe we need to repent of a half-hearted devotion. Secondly, he goes on to say in verse number 12, Turn to me with your whole heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Fasting and weeping and mourning. Think about that. God says, as you turn back to me, I want you to, to turn to me with this willingness to be someone who fasts, someone who mourns, someone who weeps. Now the truth is, we don't know a lot about fasting, mourning, and weeping. We really don't. And so perhaps God wants us to repent of our own self-indulgence, our demands that life be easy, our... our Attitude that says, I must never shed a tear. Life must always be a party. I I must always have all that I want of everything. I must never deprive myself. I must never grieve over the lostness of my world. I must never grieve over the lostness or weep over my lost loved ones. We're self-indulgent pleasure seekers. Perhaps God would say, I'm using these days to call you to be one whose heart would break for the things that my heart breaks for. It calls us to repent of half-hearted devotion, of self-indulgence. And perhaps he's calling us to repent of empty and outward religious expression. Look at verse number 13. He says, as you're returning to me with your whole heart and you're becoming one who fasts and weeps and mourns, then I want you, verse 13, "to, to rend or to rip or to tear your heart Not your garments. This is a reference to the practice in Judaism in those days to show outwardly an indignation, a a righteous, really a self righteous indignation towards sin. Uh, when when uh, the priests or others would rip their garments. You might remember when when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin and uh, he declared himself to be God that says that the high priest tore his garment, this outward show of, I'm, I'm so ashamed that you would make such a statement. I'm, I'm so indignant at your claim to deity. That, that's what he was doing, tearing his garments. Here's what the Lord says. I'm not interested in you tearing your garments. He would even say, I... I'm, I'm tired of that outward expression, which has no inward reality. Let your heart be ripped apart. Let your heart be broken. Let your heart become soft and moldable in the hands of God. Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3 and verse 5, an indictment of religion. When he says that in the last days, particularly, there would be those who would have a form, an outward or an exterior form of godliness, but there would be no inward power. Church, I believe God wants us to repent, to repent of being people whose hearts are divided, who, who have a half-hearted devotion to God, who demand our own self-indulgence and who practice external religion without any true internal devotion. And I believe that God can use days of national difficulty, even days where we can't assemble, to say, I want to transform your heart. Turn, return to me. Now, he then goes on in verse 16 and 17 with this call to repentance to say, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, get the children, get the bridegroom and the bride, the newlyweds, gather everybody together and cry out to the Lord. And oh, this is what we need to be doing in these days, crying out to the Lord for our own brokenness in a day of national brokenness. And we do that, we do that with absolute hope. Because the third thing that God says to us is that he is good. That God is good and he keeps his promises. And I want to say to you, he is, and he does. He is good, and he does keep his promises. I love that verse number 13 says, uh, rend your heart, not your garment. Verse 12, turn to me with your whole heart, with fasting, mourning, and weeping. But verse 13 says, do this because the Lord your God is gracious and he's merciful. Will you hear me today? God is gracious and he's merciful. And even in this season of national difficulty, really global crisis, God remains good and he is still merciful. You know, someone has said that grace is what we get that we don't deserve and that mercy is when we don't get what we do deserve. Well, I agree with that. God is gracious to, to give us so much more than we've ever deserved. and He is so merciful that he does not dispense to us what we have rightly earned in his wrath. I want you to know that as you cry out to the Lord today, as you acknowledge, God, I want this to be a season when you transform me, I'm returning to you with my whole heart. Know that you're coming to a God who is full of grace and who is overflowing with mercy. He goes on to say in verse number 13, He is gracious and merciful, He is slow to anger, He's patient, and He is of a great kindness. I've taught you this word before. The Hebrew word is chesed. This word kindness, chesed. It is this persistent, patient love of God. Hear me. That the God to whom we return, the God to whom we turn our half-hearted, half-devoted hearts to him and say, God, forgive me for having a divided heart. God, help me to weep over what you weep over. And God, give me grace to have an authentic heart of worship for you. That God receives us with grace and mercy. He receives us with patience and with kindness. And he goes on to say that this Gracious and merciful and kind and patient God will then give us good to replace the evil. He will give us blessing to replace the judgment and the difficulty. That out of the season of national tragedy and hardship can come national blessing. That out of the season of localized community difficulty and hardship can come localized and community blessing. And that in the family that's experiencing difficulty, that family can experience God's blessing as well. You see this over toward the end of chapter number 2. Look at verse number 21 where he he promises now to this uh, community of Judah in the days of Joel that this blessing is going to return. You remember the, the book begins by saying, you've never seen it like this. It's so bad. It's, we've never experienced this before. And he, he, he describes this army of locusts that came in and stripped all the, the, the fields bare and, and, they, and they don't have enough to eat and their cattle are dying and, and they can't worship because they have nothing to offer. That's the description of chapter 1. But when chapter 2 says, Now return to me, call out to me, and give me your whole heart. Then he says, Now I'm going to reward your repentance with blessing. Verse 21, chapter 2. Fear not, O land. But be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures and the wilderness are springing forth, and the tree is bearing her fruit again. The fig tree, the vine, do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. He had given you the former rain, but now he's going to give you the latter rain and the former rain in one month. Verse 24, the floors, threshing floors, will be full of wheat, and the vats will overflow with wine and with oil, verse 25, and I will restore to you the years that the locusts have devoured. This is the promise of our God that out of our national tragedy, loved ones, out of our global emergency, if we God's people will repent and return to him, that he will bring great blessing. He will restore what is evaporating around us and he will return his blessing to our world and our land. But we, his people, must hear chapter 2, verse 12, turn to me with your whole heart. He says in chapter 2, verse 26, if you will do that, if you will turn to me with your whole heart, you will never be disappointed. You will never be ashamed. Could it be? Could it be that our God is saying to us in this season of global and national disaster, I'm calling my people to turn, to return to me. And as we do that, as we return, then our God will pour out his blessing upon our land and our world. I believe that that is the case. And I want God to transform Jim Dykes. I want my heart to be renewed. I want my devotion to be complete. I want my demands for my ways and my ease and my comfort to yield to his demands for his ways and his glory. And I want my external outward religion to be overwhelmed by the overflowing of an internal authenticity of devotion to Jesus Christ. This is what God is saying to me and I believe it's what God is saying to you. Now I wanna, I wanna remind you that in all of this call to God's people to repent and his promise of blessing, Joel doesn't fail to remind all of the world that what was happening in that day was only a prelude to the day of the Lord that would come. And so it is today. And if you don't know Jesus as your Savior, if you've never trusted in Christ, today is your day to trust in him because you must know there is a day of the Lord coming. And if you ever believed, if you ever doubted, That the prophecies of the word of God about a future time of tribulation would come. If you ever doubted that that could happen, you should no longer doubt. Because you have seen the entire planet screech to a halt. All the nations of the world begin to collapse and to come together. If you ever wondered if such prophetic things as described in the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation could happen, you're seeing a prelude to it happening even now. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to be ready for the day of the Lord. And I want you to trust in him as your Savior. I'm going to lead you in two prayers in just a second. For those of you who have never met Jesus, I'm going to invite you to trust in him as your Savior today and to prepare for the day of the Lord. I want you to have your sins forgiven and make heaven your home. I'm going to show you. I'm going to tell you how to do that. Then I want to pray also for those of you who already know him, that we would be people who would repent and turn to the Lord.